Hello and welcome to Parley, the Hindu's weekly discussion podcast. I am Narayan Lakshman, associate editor at The Hindu and your host for today. Today, we will pick up from the recent comments of Russian President Vladimir Putin, who said that China and Germany were soon going to be superpowers as U.S. influence wanes globally. To explore that suggestion further, we will need to understand the present-day status of the U.S. politically, economically, militarily, and diplomatically, and culturally, even as it stands on the cusp of a new presidency after a remarkable almost four years under President Donald Trump. To unravel and explain these ideas, we are privileged to have two experts on the subject with us here today. First, Professor Richard Lachman from the University at Albany of the State of University of New York is an expert on comparative, historical, cultural, economic, and political sociology. His recent research projects include the study of the decline of dominant powers with a focus on the contemporary US, among others. Second, Professor Robert Lieber of Georgetown University's Government and International Affairs Department has authored and edited 17 books on international relations and US foreign policy, and has been an advisor to presidential campaigns and to the State Department. Welcome to both of you, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Good to be here. Great. So let's jump right in. Uh, Some have argued that for the U.S. to have been a robust superpower, it should not have tried in the post-Cold War era to adopt a grand strategy of liberal hegemony, spreading democracy markets and other liberal values abroad, seeking to bring the whole world into a liberal order that it designed and led, especially not when it was riven by partisanship and conservative ideologies at home, which constantly tried to shrink the size of the state. Could this apparent contradiction and growing fiscal stress stemming from polarized partisan deadlocks in Washington, D.C., be the undoing of the U.S. as a superpower abroad? Uh, we can uh, perhaps start with uh, Professor Lachman. Well, I think for much of the post-war period, there was bipartisan support for an aggressive U.S. foreign policy. Members of both parties supported large military budgets. The, most of the wars that the U.S. initiated and certainly most of the smaller interventions were supported by both parties. I mean, the only breaks for that came well into the Vietnam War when some Democrats and fewer Republicans opposed that war. And then with the Gulf and Iraq wars, where there was a good bit of opposition by Democrats, but certainly enough support so that presidents were able to move ahead with those ventures. To the extent that there's a challenge to U.S. taking an aggressive position around the world, it's it's come now from Donald Trump. This is the real break in the bipartisan support for U.S. intervention around the world. Um, uh, Professor Lieber? Now, I see that question as problematic in itself. Let me tell you why. First of all, the Putin quote is typical uh, Moscow disinformation. Um, claiming that Germany will be a superpower is a, um, a an insidious effort to puff up uh, Germany, which the uh, Russians are trying to peel off from its Western neighbors politically and economically. 
in a in a very narrow way. There is no way Germany can or will be a superpower. Its people don't want it. Its institutions won't handle it. And the nature of its coalition governments would make it impossible in any case. What Putin longs for uh, is to uh, cripple the European Union uh, as well as cripple NATO. Um, So that's for starters. Second, Russia cannot be a superpower. Its economy remains a basket case. The only thing it produces that anyone wants uh, involves raw materials and energy. It's run by a corrupt, thuggish uh, mafia state. uh, And the um, uh, more than well over half the economy is controlled through outfits nominally under the state, but which are really are tied to Putin and his cronies. The one thing the Russians do have is weaponry, modern weaponry, and a rebuilt armed forces. But they completely lack the attributes to be a great power. The real question is China. No doubt we'll talk about that at greater length. Um, let me therefore respond just to the uh, one part of your multi-part question about the United States. To describe the U.S. U.S. foreign policy up until Trump as a policy bent on liberal hegemony is a um, is a slogan used by uh, neo isolationists and realist scholars that bears little reaction little relationship to reality. Uh, it's certainly true, as uh, Professor Lockman has said, that the U.S. interventions had bipartisan support. But the fact is that already in the last days of uh, uh, President George W. Bush and throughout the presidency of Barack Obama, uh, those those two presidents and then uh, Trump in his own uh, unique way were seeking to retrench or pull back uh, from America's extensive overseas involvements. Those involvements, however, had to do, above all, with seeking to sustain a rules-based international order, which the U.S. and its allies had done so much to construct, but which which was increasingly under siege from both um, uh, Russians and um, Chinese, uh, as well as from forces unleashed by globalization itself, economic change, technology, and so forth. Right. So let me uh, stay on that question. Um, I think what was implied there was also that not so much that it was only a bipartisan consensus uh, in terms of the manner in which the U.S. intervened abroad, but also that it uh, the question posed is, was there sufficient capacity afforded to the machinery of the government uh, by, by uh, you know, the, the fiscal aspect, the fiscal angle, does it have, did it have the money power? Did it have the politics to make that money power work for it as it continued to intervene abroad and try to spread its liberal values abroad? Well, I mean, certainly the military budget has been more than ample throughout the post-war period that, you know, that, to the extent that the U.S. military has been unsuccessful abroad, it's not from mm-hmm. lack of money. Mm-hmm. It's from poor strategy or trying to push policies in certain countries that there was no local support for. I mean, the one thing that's changed is since the Vietnam War, it's been impossible in the U.S. to 
draft citizens into the military. So the U.S. military has had to operate with a much smaller number of soldiers, and that certainly affects strategy. And on the other hand, domestically, there, you know, from the Reagan era on, there have been very sharp cutbacks in government spending. So the U.S. government's capacity to deal with domestic issues to provide for its citizens has been declining. And that certainly has an effect on the United States and weakens it, even if it doesn't directly affect foreign policy. Uh, Professor Lieber, did you want to respond as well? Yeah, I see it somewhat differently. It, it, it connects closely to a book that I'm I've nearly finished writing uh, with the working title, Indispensable Nation, the um, uh, U.S. foreign po- uh, American foreign policy in a turbulent world. In it, I ask three questions. First, is the U.S. world role that is one of deep engagement and periodic leadership essential for a decent rules-based international order? It may or may not be, but I ask that question. Second question is, if the U.S. role is indispensable for that order, is it the case that uh, much greater challenges abroad from hostile great powers, China, Russia, Iran, and so forth, coupled with important changes and challenges domestically, including polarization and division, uh, no longer make it possible for the U.S. to play that role in some way? And the third question I ask is, if the U.S. cannot play that role, what will the consequences be? My answer to the first question is, yes, the U.S. still is indispensable, and I'd be glad to cite numerous examples of why. Second, that the problems abroad and at home are very real. The U.S. faces much greater obstacles to playing that role than it had, say, after the end of the Cold War for about a decade and a half, two decades. And three, if the U.S. is unwilling or unable to play that role, I would argue the consequences are likely to be quite nasty. Uh, the reason is has to do with what are called collective action problems. That is to say, it's all well and good to say that if the U.S. pulls back from its commitments, other countries will band together to counterbalance Russia or Iran or China. But it doesn't work that way. It has, has to do with problems of free riding and the fact that a collective action problems almost inevitably require that there be somebody to act as the catalyst, organizer, galvanizer of this. And this is far, far more than the issue of merely sending in the Marines. So that if the U.S. continues to pull back, the consequences, I think, in terms of disorder, conflict, war, regional um, upheavals, um, and human rights as well as economic prosperity would be uh, uh, very unfortunate. Um, Okay, let me just build on that. So do you think then at the present juncture, we are actually heading, possibly taking the first few steps maybe in that direction, and I mean the world as a whole, because we are seeing the blowback from years of... uh, the globalization and liberalization uh, sort of dogma in economics, which led right from the start of the Bretton Woods institutions, uh, you know, all the way to, you know, the WTO, everything that we saw uh, into the 21st century. 
And then, you know, what happened since uh, 2016 and uh, with Brexit and Trump and similar movements and reactions elsewhere. But do you think that both those things uh, that Professor Lieber talked about are happening, uh, Professor Lachman, that is, that the U.S. is indeed pulling back and some of these uh, rising powers are indeed beginning to assert themselves. And as Professor Lieber might have, uh, did say, uh, that it's going to lead to a lack of balance. It's going to lead to destabilizing effects across the world as these rising powers start squabbling with each other. Well, I think it depends in in which realm certainly in terms of global finance and regulating the global economy the u.s's powers if anything become greater since the 2008 financial crisis the federal reserve is looked to by central banks elsewhere in the world by governments around the world as the stopgap you know the one institution that can generate enough money to sustain the global economy. So in that area, the U.S. remains indispensable, is recognized by other countries as in, indispensable, and the Federal Reserve has enough autonomy within the U.S. to play that role. In the realm of military, you know, certainly the United States' lack of success in Afghanistan and Iraq has had a I think a profound effect that it you know has let governments elsewhere in the world feel that they have more room to challenge the US without having to worry as much about consequences and you know I think that will lead to the sort of instability that Professor Lieber is talking about. I think it's important for us to recognize that the decline of the US doesn't necessarily mean that another power will take its place. We could move into a world where you have regional powers exerting influence, you have a number of strong countries challenging each other, you know, hopefully without direct military clashes, without some country emerging. And I think Professor Lieber was exactly right in explaining why neither Germany nor Russia can f replace the U.S. And with China, I think it's too early to tell. Perhaps at some point it will, but I don't think that's that China will be able to step in if the U.S. declines precipitously. And then you know, in the realm of culture and championing democracy, the U.S. has you know, had a double role. On the one hand, it you know, certainly has been a champion of democracy and liberal values around the world, even though in a number of countries the U.S. has fomented coups, suppressed democracies, and that's something that's happened under both parties. I mean, if we look at Latin America, one of the ironies of the post-war period is that it was under Kennedy and Johnson, then Obama, the most liberal U.S. presidents, that you had waves of coups in Latin America. So, you know, it's, you know, the U.S. plays this sort of double role. And I think if Trump is reelected, you know, this will be a blow to American prestige, the image of the United States that it won't be able to recover from. You know, somebody like can be elected president once by mistake, but if they're reelected, that's a sort of endorsement and that would make a statement about Americans and their values that, you know, I think the rest of the world will recoil from with horror. Okay. Some fantastic uh, ideas, uh, 
coming on Ravel that we'll we'll come back to several of them. But right now, I also want to look a little more closely at the economic scenario within the U.S. Um, you know, the U.S. national debt is some something in the range of sixteen trillion dollars and growing. And that is potentially a crisis in the making for the economy because uh, other things are happening too. Real wages are falling, productivity growth is down. Uh, while there are, of course, some very successful U.S. companies uh, in global markets, some of them are losing their competitive edge in certain sectors to uh, other rising powers. Um, and domestically, again, the nation's infrastructure is not in the best shape. The healthcare system uh, we know what's happening there. Uh, the you know with the Affordable Care Act, there was some sense of progress and things have possibly uh, improved, but they may go back as well. Uh, looking more locally and regionally, some cities and neighborhoods are considered unsafe. Schools are not uh, you know performing to their best ability, and inequality is said to be rising as well. So given that. There are other countries, let's say like China and India, that have certain engines of growth, a young population, uh, a growing manufacturing base, and uh, you know a culture of innovation taking root there. Does the U.S. face the risk of losing its global economic uh, preeminence to these countries uh, in the face of these factors? Uh, let's start with uh, Professor Lieber. Yeah. Um, by the way, let me start by saying I, um, I agree fully with what uh, Professor Lachman said about the role of the U.S. dollar, the Federal Reserve, and the importance of the U.S. economy. I, I make exactly those points in my own writing. Um, the U.S. Federal Reserve effect um, as these two crises, the one a decade ago and the financial and COVID crisis now show, um, the U.S. and the Fed remain effectively the world's central bank. It's a tremendous asset. I would draw a distinction about the United States. And it's, it's a point I think that declinist public intellectuals and scholars uh, miss. In material terms, despite the rise of China, the US still possesses advantages almost across the entire spectrum by which power is measured that are largely unmatched elsewhere. Natural resources, Population, population size and scale, um, inventiveness, flexibility, entrepreneurial skills, high tech, great research universities, energy and natural resources, agriculture, resilient institutions. Uh, I could go on and on, as well as, of course, military strength um, uh, and, and what, what have you. The problem for the United States is not so much in the material realm, but in the ideational one. It has to do with will, public consensus, human beliefs, and so on. The issue right now is that of polarization and bitter and deep domestic dissensus. The confirmation of Supreme Court Justice, the Supreme Court Justice yesterday, Amy, um, uh, yeah, um, was without a single vote from the opposition party, the Democrats. Not since the year 1869, under newly elected President Grant, has the Supreme Court justice been confirmed by the Senate without at least some bipartisan support. That's as good a symbol as any of the bitter political dissensus in the United States. Finally, there's one more factor, which is to say, social and cultural change in the United States, not only demographic, 
but the generation of the 60s with its views that are largely condemnatory of the United States and are avant-garde on social issues um, have prevailed in America's leading cultural institutions, foundations, much of the press, and the universities. And they've brought to maturity a generation that simply lacks um, an understanding of America's historical role that focuses exclusively on its demerits and faults, and they are many, without attention or even understanding of its redeeming virtues. A final word here. The U.S. has many shortcomings, but you have to say compared to what? If you look at other great powers now, in the recent past, or historically, the U.S. has had a far more benign impact, both for its own population and for much of the rest of the world. And that gets lost in current domestic debates. Thank you. Um, Professor Lachman? Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly the U.S. has an unparalleled position militarily and economically. So, you know, what is worrisome are the trends, the direction in which things are going. I don't think the large government debt is an issue because the United States is unique in that the dollar is the world currency and the through the Federal Reserve, the government can generate, you know, at least up till now. So, you know, most of that debt can be you know, create, you know, dealt with by, you know, just the Federal Reserve creating more dollars. And at least up till now, the inflation rate is so low that, you know, that danger doesn't exist. If, if anything, the danger is not too much spending, but too little or spending that goes in the wrong direction. In the book that I published earlier this year, First Class Passengers on a Sinking Ship, Elite Power and the Elite Conflict and the Decline of Great Powers, I, you know, in part make that sort of point. And we see that directly in healthcare. The United States, you know, both in actual amounts and as a percentage of GDP, spends much more on health than any other country in the world without getting results to justify that sort of spending. Countries that spend a lot less have longer life expectancy, less illness. And the only way to explain that is that healthcare is delivered in a way that allows all sorts of providers to collect enormous sums, in, in essence, to loot the healthcare system. And you know, we can look in other areas and see the same thing. If we look at the military, you know, again, you know, this is enormous spending, but it doesn't have the sort of military that would justify that. And that in part is because parts of the military budget go to buy weapon systems that are good for contractors, good for the careers of senior officers, but don't fit at all with the sorts of wars that the United States fights or, you know, might be fighting in the future. And if we look in other realms, you know, U.S. universities still are leading, but spending in the public sphere of that has been dropping and those universities are doing less well. And the United States is facing a mortal threat if 
Trump is reelected and the limits on foreign students coming to the U.S. are sustained. And especially in the sciences at the graduate level, not that many Americans want to study science and technology. They want to go into finance. And the United States's edge in science and technology is sustained almost entirely by international students coming to the U.S. And the day when they're not allowed in or they decide they want to study elsewhere or that they want to remain at home, the United States's edge in technology will very quickly evaporate. So, you know, these are serious dangers that could undermine the United States' huge advantages that have lasted up till this moment. Okay, thank you. Um, so, segueing from that, uh, looking at uh, what has happened under the first term of Mr. Trump, uh, on the sort of global uh, stage, the U.S. has steadily been retreating from several prior uh, engagements with multilateral forums and withdrawing from some treaty agreements and accords. Uh, and among them, you could include the Trans-Pacific Trade Pact, the Paris Climate Accord, the Iran Nuclear Freeze Agreement, um, sort of proximity or closeness in relations with NATO allies, diplomatic relations with Cuba, and even the uh, diplomatic pivot to Asia, which was uh, gaining momentum under a previous administration. But to be fair to Mr. Trump as well, even before he entered office, uh, the U.S. had been, I think, as uh, Professor Lachman uh, or Professor Lieber, both of you alluded to earlier, uh, the U.S. had been facing a blowback in some global uh, arenas, including Afghanistan and Iraq and more recently Syria and the whole Arab Spring situation. And of course, most prominently, and for this conversation as well, Washington's failure to curb uh, the aggressive rise of China as an Asian hegemon uh, um, and you know other regional powers that act with impunity beyond their borders uh, in Asia too, like uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, to the east, uh, North Korea and Russia. And uh, even in Latin America, you have uh, Venezuela. So to remain, uh, my question is this, to remain as a viable geopolitical superpower, must the U.S. rethink how it engages strategically with allies and foes? And uh, Professor Lieber, start with you. Yeah, the U.S. has these enormous capacities uh, pretty much across the board. There are certainly some worrying trends, and Professor Lachman has uh, rightly pointed out some of them. Um, are they irreversible? No, I don't think so. But we also have to ask ourselves what American engagement and leadership mean. The U.S. cannot do everything. And even, it's worth re recalling, even at, a at the height of America's power, that is, after World War II ended in 1945, again, after the end of the Cold War when the U.S. was the, the lone superpower, America was never omniscient um, nor omnipotent. Uh, throughout those, those periods of time, the U.S., perennially faced issues, problems, crises, conflicts, where what it wanted to happen didn't, didn't happen, or it suffered reversals. That's been a, a hearty perennial. So the question is, is the U.S. in the changing circumstances now in front of us, compared to even 20 years ago, still capable of exercising leadership? The answer, I think, is yes, but one has to understand what that means. That means leadership in galvanizing like-minded countries with shared interests. For example, on China, which has been predatory, predatory 
both economically and militarily against its, I mean, against its neighbors territorially and against the world in the use of its uh, economic and trade muscle and its blatant cheating on the rules of the road for trade, investment, technology, uh, intellectual piracy, and so forth. We can only be effective if we do it in collaboration with our friends and allies. The Trump administration could have been far more effective if it had dealt with China together in coordination with the European Union countries and with Asian allies. Uh, if you don't do that, then you leave China in a position to pick off individual countries by using blackmail. So, for example, the Australians call for an investigation into China's role in the spread of the coronavirus, which is really quite scandalous. And the Chinese retaliate by blocking or threatening to block exports of agricultural goods and coal from Australia, which matter a great deal. That's just but but one illustration. If you approach China with a more common shared response, you have far more leverage and are likely to be far more effective in providing incentives as well as disincentives for China to play by the rules, which they manifestly do not do now. But that type of leadership will be rather different from the ability in the past, whether for good or ill, to act more unilaterally. Thank you. Uh, Professor Lachman? Yeah, I certainly agree with that, that you know, the United States will only be able to counter China if it has allies. And if we you know, look back at the whole post-war period, one of the big advantages that the U.S. had was that its allies were much wealthier and much stronger than those of the Soviet Union, that Western Europe was able to contribute much more to NATO than the countries of Eastern Europe were able to contribute to the Warsaw Pact. And, you know, the United in, in part, the United States was able to maintain these allies by genuinely offering advantages and not trying to, you know, press to constantly have the U.S. benefit at the expense of its allies. And, you know, what is worrisome now is that there's a view of trade agreements or even military alliances that they need to work entirely for the U.S. and that if the U.S. is having to make contributions to sustain the alliance, that somehow it's being ripped off. I mean, that's certainly the way Trump presents it. But even before Trump, there was an element of that. And it, you know, it's certainly something that appeared in U.S. politics in earlier decades, but it was something that was overcome by you know, what was a strong consensus around the need for U.S. leadership in the world. And, you know, so that's something that appears to be coming apart. And, you know, I'm not at all confident that it can be reconstituted. If I, if I can add something here, which directly follows on, um, I think that um, we haven't given enough attention to certain advantages the U.S. still retains, despite uh, going through a really bad patch these days. And that has to do with values. Joe Nye of Harvard referred years ago to soft power. The U.S. certainly has hard power, but by soft power, it means values. And whether country, it shares 
those values and preferences with other other countries. There's some skepticism about it, um, especially on the left. But if you ask yourself a simple question, do people want to go to refugees or, or others want to go to China or Russia or Iran? Or would they much rather come to Western European countries and especially the United States were it not for our, I think, unwise barriers to immigration these days? The answer is by far the United States. Um, I think despite the, the blows we've taken, a lot of that is eminently repairable. And it's worth re- remembering that despite what in some quarters is hysteria about um, the threats to the American political system, the U.S. has sustained itself through challenges worse than these, the 1930s, the Civil War, and so forth. America's political institutions are very deep and resilient. And I think the, the longer-term prospects, the, the reasons to be cautiously optimistic about longer-term prospects, provided the U.S. has political and economic leadership that has a decent understanding of the stakes and the nature of America's world role and the need for cooperation with allies. Now, let me say that cooperation can, in some places, involve cooperating with international institutions. In other cases, the answer is no, for example, because Russia and China have vetoes on the UN Security Council. So you have to be rule goal-oriented rather than looking solely at the organizational standpoint. Thank you. Um, actually, uh, Professor Lieber, you anticipated my next question, which was on culture and values, and I think your comments are well taken there. Um, so, and would you like to add to that, Professor Lachman, uh, especially bearing in mind also that uh, while what Professor Lieber says is true in terms of uh, values that matter to immigrants, for example, and draw them to U.S. shores, uh, there are still you know, very serious questions that predate President Trump relating to racism, you know, hate crimes against minorities, uh, rising violent crimes in some areas, uh, you know, divorce rates rising by five times uh, in the last few years of the previous century, uh, children living in single-parent homes, teenage suicide rates. There are lots of statistics that you would know well, too, as a sociologist. Um, uh, Do these things matter at all to what you could actually call a superpower nation and the definition of the U.S. as that? So, uh, does this matter? I, I think it definitely does. I mean, you know, if we look back at the civil rights era, that you know, part of the motivation among you know white public officials was their worry about the Soviet Union's you know very effective use of racism to make propaganda points, and you know, so. You, you know, we know that Supreme Court justices, before they ruled that school segregation was unconstitutional, were directly talking about that, saying that, you know, if we continue to allow segregation, the Soviets will be able to make hay out of that. And, you know, if we look at the current period, the United States' failure to deal with coronavirus, you know, this sort of open conflict, you know, Militias going around with automatic weapons, you know, declining educational attainment, you know, 
drug addiction. You know, there are all sorts of problems. You know, they some of them wax and wane over time, but you know, certainly in recent years, many of these problems have been getting worse, and inequality in the United States has been rising now for the past forty years. And you know, I certainly couldn't argue that everybody around the world is aware of that, but the people who shape opinions in other countries are aware of that. They do talk about it. And the view, I think, in much of the world is that the United States is much less capable of dealing with its domestic problems than it once was. And, you know, that undermines U.S. prestige, certainly not the whole image of the United States, but it's an important one. And one of the strongest arguments China has is that even though they don't have democracy, they're very effective in dealing with some of their social problems. You know, yes, they, you know, were you know, incompetent, if not criminal, in their lack of response to the initial outbreak of coronavirus, but, you know, they now have suppressed it. And, you know, we see there's one case in a city and within a few days they've tested 5 million people and isolated all the people who have that. That certainly adds to China's prestige and people around the world who are unsure of, you know, what's the model they want to follow. In addition to looking at, is there democracy, are dissidents thrown in prison? Also look at government's abilities to address their citizens needs and you know in some realms china now is doing better than the united states and that's a disgrace if i can add something here the uh, i agree with some but not all of what uh, professor luckman has said china is notorious for manipulating its uh, statistics about its own population its economy its growth rate and so forth um for example, a pretty neutral uh, and authoritative site, The Economist magazine has made that point, and they're not the, the only ones. Um, I think some of what's said about China, especially by the Chinese authorities themselves, is exaggerated. Um, the Chinese GDP per capita is only slightly above that of, or roughly in the range of Mexico, for instance, although their overall GDP is quite large. Nonetheless, if you measure GDP by um, market exchange rates, which the IMF said is the proper way to compare countries, um, the U.S. still remains substantially ahead of, uh, of China. The, um, so, so I think to some extent there's too much pessimism about the um, uh, social situation, the economic inequality, race, and so forth in the U.S. Some of it is wildly exaggerated, like the claim of, Systemic racism, I think, is frankly a a misnomer. Although it's uh, you can't say that in public too readily. If you look at U.S. statistics and the U.S. situation just before the pandemic hit, levels of employment, prosperity, growing economic equality, especially for less paid workers, blue collar, lower white collar, share of the workforce uh, gainfully employed. Uh, and so forth. Those numbers were looking much better than they had in at least four four decades. And the the uh, uh, COVID nineteen pandemic 
dealt the United States a body blow. I think that's reversible. Second is the very worrisome issue about America's image abroad, which right now is terrible. But I think that's reversible, assuming, which is a risky proposition, but assuming a Biden election. Uh, I suspect uh, the uh, opinion polls will do uh, a turnaround uh, very quickly. The same thing was true under far less extreme circumstances in the shift after George W. Bush's um, uh, end of his presidency and the onset of um, uh, Barack Obama, for instance. And I think you'll find that uh, if Trump is defeated and Biden takes over, you'll see a similar uh, switch. Um, the um, uh, Frankly, most of our Democratic, liberal, um, rules-based allies would love the United States to do a turnaround. And the, poll, the opinion poll attitudes tend to swing, oscillate from one extreme to the other. My guess is, again, with the huge caveat that if Trump loses the election, you will see such a swing in the coming months. Okay, so uh, we'll have to leave it at that. But many, many thanks to both our discussants for a wonderful in-depth conversation that truly looked at the many different dimensions of this superpower question with regards to the U.S. Uh, thank you both for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And uh, to our listeners, please tune in to our website again soon for more on Parley, the weekly podcast from The Hindu.